sequel to the book of Luke is the book of Acts. And we're going to look into this, and basically it, it kind of gives the history of the early church. That's what it's been about. And so as we've been looking into this, it's had some fascinating stuff. The early church started with this bang. It didn't just something that you fall. It started from this event of the resurrection of Jesus. And then it started off with this power of God showing up, doing some crazy stuff. Because here's what we know. When God's power shows up, stuff that shouldn't happen actually happens, and things just change. And it's amazing what you begin to see. And we begin to look at this idea that the connected life is far greater than the surrounded life. And these early believers lived life connected in ways that was just amazing. And I want us to kind of look back into that a little bit tonight, and then we're going to look at the story in Acts chapter 5 that I'm just going to tell you right now, it's crazy. It's, it's just crazy. And in fact, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're just kind of getting back into church, you're going to hear this story tonight, and you're going to be like, that, that doesn't seem like that should be in the Bible. And I'm going to say to you, it is. And it's weird, and it's okay. And we'll kind of walk through that a little bit, because it, it, it kind of catches you off guard a little bit. But I think there's some truth here for us to begin to see. As we kind of look at this, here's the two key thoughts for tonight, okay? And I'm going to adjust my mic here, sorry. Two key thoughts is uh, invested people matter. People that are invested matter. They make a difference. And people of integrity make a difference. That's kind of where we're going, an overarching shot of where we're going. So Acts chapter 4, here's how it begins. Uh, toward the end there, we begin verse 32. Uh, all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now stop right there. Anyone ever spent time around kids? Anyone ever spent time around yourself? I, I had the awesome opportunity to do a family vacation this week in the happiest place on earth, supposedly. And as I walked around there with my kids, I noticed something. Remember the old, uh, is it Nemo that has the birds and they say, what? Mine, 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 mine. Just do it with me. Just, it's more fun. Mine. See, don't you feel like you're reenacting a movie right now? Um, it's like you could have been cast members. And it's, you kind of hear that in the background of the happy music that goes on. Because here's what you begin to notice is that kids who get one lollipop... Uh, the other kid eats theirs faster, and then what do they do? They, they're like, someone ate mine, and they go to grab their brothers or sisters. You're like, well, you ate yours, and like, well, I don't have one anymore, so I'm going to take yours. And so it's this notion of things always wanting to be mine, and, and it's always wanting more. And yet, here we begin to see that this connected life, these early followers, actually lived in a way that was counter-cultural. Can we at least be honest and say that we live in a culture that kind of breeds selfishness? Is that true? I mean, can we just be honest and say, okay, that's somewhat of an, a, a backdrop or an undertone to our culture in which we live. And it's very easy for us, in a way, to begin to live that way and to, to kind of find ourselves being swept away in that tow, and in that current that we live and Luke's noting something here that these believers, these early followers of Jesus, actually lived a different way. No one claimed that any of their possession was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, for from time to time those who owned lands and houses sold them, 
brought the money of the sales and put that at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as they had need. That is mind-blowing. Now, I'm not saying that we need to do that. I'm not saying we need to have one communal uh, piggy bank that we all kind of put things into and, and no one owns anything anymore. But in the early church, that's how they began. Now, you have to understand in the early church, you, you think back to the culture, they're under persecution, right? They're facing the, the, the incredible power of Rome, who in one sense is trying to squish them out and yet they have this love and the way that they're living life and the way that they are living this connected life, not only helping each other grow spiritually, but actually giving to one another in a way that meets needs, begins to, to kind of cement something in their mindset and the way they viewed life. And it actually, friends, it's how the scriptures call us to view life. It's to view life as a steward, to view life as a manager, not an owner. And see, all throughout the scriptures, over and over and over again, there's this call and this push for us to be, view our things, our stuff, our resources, our money, our talents, our time, as we're not the owner of those, but we are rather the manager of those. That the abilities that you have, you don't have those just because you have them. You have them as a gift from God. God gave you the ability to do what you do. God gave you the ability to be in the position that you're in. And so you have as a manager the ability now to steward and to kind of watch over those time and over those talents and over those treasures and over those resources in a way that can honor the greater story that's going on here. In fact, Psalm 24 says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's not that God said, okay, Okay, you have this, and you have this, and you have this, and I'll just kind of hold on to these things. God says, no, I own it all, and I'll let you steward this, and I'll let you manage this. And we need to hold things loosely. And so often in our culture of selfishness, we tend to get a tight grip on our stuff. In fact, we call it our stuff. This is mine, 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 and that becomes the mantra of what goes on in our hearts. Does anyone ever feel this tug in their own heart? Man, I feel this in my own. Just being brutally honest, it is so challenging at times to not view things as your stuff. I call it my house. And when I'm yelling at my kids sometimes, it's, this is my house, right? It's not my house. In fact, I have to stop sometimes. I go, wait, 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 wait. No, this is God's house, and it's on loan, and we're here managing it. This is God's car. In fact, sometimes when my car breaks, I just remind him, God, this is your car, and your car broke. And I don't know what you're going to do about it, but it's your car, and so you need to get this fixed and help me out here. And because here's the truth, I have to retrain my mind to think as a manager, not an owner. How does that help the movement of Jesus in what's called the church? Do you think that makes a difference? Do you think that begins to say that this movement of Jesus and his grace and his hope and his love that's to be on display in this world in us and reflected through us, when people live that way, when it's so counterculture, it begins to get noticed, doesn't it? Can you imagine being back in this first century and people are living this way and it's not this claw yourself and pull everything and hoard it into yourself, but rather this notion where people were giving 
freely. That had to be noticed. In fact, you begin looking through the early church, you begin to see how people took note of this. See, people began to view church as not something they went to, like a movie, and you just paid dues to it, because that's what, it was entertainment, you just kind of went to it. They actually began to view church as this community that I belonged to, and this movement that I'm a part of, not something I merely attend. But as I'm a part of this, I then pull in in this notion of the resources together can make a much bigger difference than the resources of just my own or what I have to manage. And so this early church began to put on display what does it mean to live this connected life as well as this invested life? That the movement of Jesus, friends, here's where it becomes practical to us. The movement of Jesus that God has for Element City Church, for the slice of the kingdom that we are to manage, that we are to tend, that we are to be managers of, that not only here for now or wherever God lands us, and just I encourage you to keep praying for that. We're in our 40 days of prayer and just encourage you to keep praying that God would put us where we need to be uh, in Midtown. And we've got a few conversations going and a few that are shutting down and we just we need to know where God has for us. And so keep praying with us in that. Um, <clears throat> and in that notion, it takes our resources. It takes the abilities that are represented in this room. You know, I, I love to watch our worship team and I, I wish you could meet some of our tech crew, and just the things they can do blow me away because I can't do them. I, I wish you could meet some of our connectors and the way that they connect with people and the way that they invest their lives and kind of give their heart to people in a way that begins to say, here's something that connects with people. In fact, we got an email this last week of a person who came this uh, two weeks ago who just was walked in and, and taken care of and they said, no, there's just something about this place and it takes all of us investing in that. And as we move forward, as we become a full-fledged church, it's gonna take the efforts of some of us who are, have the ability to work with students and who just love students. We have a number of students. We don't even have a student ministry yet, but we know we need one and we want one. And it's gonna take some of us pulling our resources and our time and our talents into those, working with our kids' ministry with eKids and working with different avenues of security and, and just all kinds of stuff, small group leaders down the road as we do home groups later in the fall, as we begin to launch new and new things, we need people. But see, it also takes the investment not just of your time and of your talents, but also of your treasure. See, that's what the early church was doing, of saying, hey, we're investing who we are and what we have because we're managers, not owners. And as a manager, I'm going to invest a percentage of what I give. Here, I'm just giving you an example. This is what Amy and I do. We set aside a percentage of our income, and we say we want to be a part of Element City Church and be a part of the movement of Jesus here. And so every time we get paid, we kind of log on. We do it online. And we log on and we say, hey, here's the percentage that we're going to give. And we do that together online, make that payment. And we, we kind of say, hey, we're invested. We're here. We're here to make a difference. We're here to see this go somewhere and to make a difference, not just to be our home church. Because here's the blessing of our home church. It's where I get to raise my kids. It's where I get fed spiritually. It's where I get to worship wholeheartedly. It's where I get encouraged with people around me. It's where I get people who come alongside me when I'm struggling. That's the power of a home church. 
And I want that just for me, but I also want that for people who aren't here yet. I want that for my friends that are far from God. And I want them to experience and taste and see the power of that in their own life. And so I give to that. And so here's my encouragement to you. And maybe you're here again and you're just a guest with us and it's so awesome to have you here. And um, if you are a guest, you check out for the next few minutes, okay? You kind of already know where I'm going. You are welcome to be a part of this. But if you're not a believer and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, it's okay to sit back and just, you're kind of eavesdropping in on a family conversation. And eavesdropping in on us and saying, hey, we're gonna be a church that's fully connected, living life one one to another, but also this invested life where we're investing in what God is up to and what he's doing in this community and through us. And so what might that look like for you? What might that look like for you to begin to take a step toward that? Some of you might be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, preacher dude, uh, I think you just asked for money. And that ain't cool because I've got a car and it's broken down. It's God's car, I know, no, but um, he hasn't fixed it yet and I'm not sure what to do with that. And I just, here's what I wanna say to you. It's baby steps, okay? It's this idea that all of us in this room, all of us who call Element City Church home, that it's gonna take our investment to be a part of the movement of Jesus and what he's up to and how he wants to bring the hope of, of, hope of his heart to the heart of this city. And it's gonna take all of us in little ways and in small ways. And so I just wanna encourage you to personally think about what that might mean for you. How do you give your time? How do you give your talents over the next few weeks and few months as we begin to develop and grow and add things and add ministries? How do, can you participate in that? And how can you make this a part of your investment financially too? Does that make sense? So this church, in the early church, is experiencing this incredible selfless kind of life. It's amazing things. In fact, it goes on here at the end of chapter four and there's this guy, Barnabas. Anyone ever heard of Barnabas before? Uh, Barnabas is a guy that's gonna be a church leader and he comes forward, he actually sells this property and he brings the, the sale of this property and lays it at the apostles' feet, at, at Peter's feet. And everyone kind of oohs and ahs. This amazing gift given to the church. There's a couple other people that are in the crowd that day. Ananias and Sapphira. And this is the part where the story gets a little weird. Because here's what we've been noticing through the whole first part of Acts. Is God's doing these miracles left and right. His provision all over the place. God is at work. When God shows up and his power is on display, things that shouldn't happen, happen. And his amazing story unfolding. And then this weird story happens. And if you're just reading through Acts, you kind of get to this and you go, that's got to be a mistake. Like, that doesn't seem like that's even in the character of God to do this. Like, that's weird. So are you ready for it? Here's the story that begins to unfold. So Barnabas, we know, okay, has, has sold his land and brought this wholesale and brought it as a gift, not to get accolades, not to get the honor that, you know, he was there. He was just saying, hey, I want to be a part of this movement of what the early church is about these, as followers of Jesus. And if you want to follow along, you're welcome to do that in your Bible. If you have your phone, you can also go to version. If you're on that and you know what that is, then uh, we actually started doing notes on version. But here's what happens, ready? I'm just going to read this, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, cool names, please don't name your kid that, um, they also sold a piece of property. 
With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit, and you have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Did it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but rather lied to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Not fainted, not passed out, not took a nap, died. It gets weirder. When Ananias, uh, so he heard this, he fell down dead. Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then young men came forward because he must have been a big guy. They needed a bunch of people to wrap him up. They wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Man, that is bad pastoral care right there. I mean, how, I mean, um, Peter asked, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price we got for the land. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. What? Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these events. What? Do I want to be here right now? You may be thinking that. This is a weird story. And I'll just be really honest. As, as your pastor, I've struggled with this story for a lot of years. There's a part of me that goes, God, that's just not right. You're a God of grace. You're a God of hope. How in the world do you just strike people dead? Like, they gave you money. Does anyone else see the disconnect here? Do you feel that? Do you feel like, okay, they brought money to the church and died? That just doesn't seem right, does it? It just feels weird. It feels awkward. It feels like that, that doesn't fit. And what's fascinating is how scholars have debated over this passage for a lot. In fact, a lot of people have said, you know, this had to be just a figment or a legend, so to speak. But you, you start looking through the early church, you start reading through the scriptures, and, and you just, why does Luke include this? That has to be one of the questions you ask. Why in the world does Luke include this in his gospel account, in his account of the early church? Everything's been going super great, super awesome. God's doing incredible things. People die. Then it goes right back to people doing awesome things, and God's showing up. And you're like, uh, I don't understand. Do you feel in that yet? It feels weird, doesn't it? God's been doing this miraculous provision all throughout the first part of Acts up to this point, and he will continue to do so after this point. Can I just suggest to you, here's the conclusion I'm coming to, that maybe God is in the midst of miraculous provision. At the same time, God can be in the midst of miraculous protection as well. 
here's what I mean. Sometimes discipline is harsh, isn't it? Sometimes I've got to come down heavy on one of my children because of something that's done. Does that mean I hate them? Not at all. It means I love them. In fact, I actually love them enough to actually care about what goes forward. Now, I know if you're a kid in here and you're hearing that, you're like, blah, 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 blah. Um, because I did that when my dad did that, and I was like, blah, 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 blah. I get it. But as a parent, at least hold op- open mind that says, at some point, maybe this will make sense to you one day when you're a parent or one day when you're a grandparent. That sometimes tough love means I get involved in this moment and maybe I protect from something you can't even see. So not only can God be at work doing miraculous provision for his church and for his people, but maybe God can be at work doing miraculous protection of his people because God measures things differently. I told you, I was at Disneyland this week. So we go around, I have a six-year-old, uh, Callista, who, uh, and we have that picture so every ride we went on, we had to go to the place up toward the front, you know where it is? Not where you get the fast pass, because that's the cool place, but right at the start of the line, and you get there, and you have that measurement stick, and remember, you have to walk up, and you have to pretend like you're extra tall if you're six, and you try to make sure that you measure up to that, because here's the truth. We can measure weight. We can measure height. We can measure reach, but here's something we begin to see in the scriptures. Nobody can measure the heart. God can. In fact, God seems to measure the heart more than anything else. As you begin to read through the scriptures, you begin to see this tone, begin to notice this pattern that as my daughter would walk up to these things to measure herself. In fact, we even try to fudge on this, don't we? I met some friends there, and they said for, uh, for their little boy, you know, we forgot his tall shoes today. <laughs> tall shoes. Like, you have extra tall sneakers so that you can fudge on your height. And we try to do that, right? We call it the cover-up. In fact, I have a couch in my house. It's a beautiful couch. It's red. Got some stripes on it. If you've been to my house, a few of you have, there's two big pillows that sit on either end. And what you don't know about my couch is it's super comfortable. You should come over sometime. Uh, it's super comfortable. You can, you can rest there. But here's what you don't know just looking at my couch. It's a beautiful couch. It's awesome. Until you remove one of the throw rugs that happens to be on the arm of the chair. Because here's what's underneath there. This giant mauled mess of the arm of the chair, which my dog has chewed up. And I haven't had the time to get it reupholstered yet. So beautiful couch on the outside until you remove one of the throw rugs that happens to be on the arm. And then you see this mauled mess. And we call that what? The cover-up. We like to cover things up, don't we? We do that in our culture. Come on, seriously. Anyone got something like a rug placed in your house over a stain or in your car? Seriously. I'm the only one? <sighs> People. You are covering up things right now. (laughs) We tend in our culture to cover things up because we don't want people to see a blemish. We don't want people to see imperfection. We try to hide that. We do that with everything. We do that with our bodies. We do that with our character. We do that with our conduct. We do that with our heart. We do that with our things and stuff that we own. And here's the truth. 
every cover-up has a shelf life to it. Every cover-up has a shelf life to it. Meaning everything that is covered up will be uncovered at some point. You might be able to cover it for a while, but you can't hide it forever. Now, you might be getting fidgety, and that's okay, because God might be tugging at your heart a little bit here, and that's okay too. This is not about perfection, okay? This is about progress. It's one of our values here, that this, the spiritual life Jesus calls us to is this about making progress in our spiritual journey with him, not being perfect, because there is no one perfect. I'm not. You're not. We're all on the same level playing field there. That's why we all need grace. That's why we need hope. That's why we need God. And that's why we don't want to live a covered up life. We want to become kind of people who are what you see is what you get kind of people, right? That's what I want. Why is that so hard to to hang on to at times? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do I lie? Why do I fudge on the truth? Why do I cover things up in my conversations or cover things up in my interactions with people? Why do we do that? We do it a lot for protection sometimes, right? We think it's protecting ourselves. We try to insulate ourselves, so to speak. But the truth is, cover-ups have a shelf life to them, don't they? You know that to be true. You've experienced that. You've seen that happen not just for yourself, but maybe with other people. This, this story of Ananias and Sapphira is a fascinating story. It still bugs me, I'll just be honest. I don't get it fully. But the truth, I think, here is not only can God be at work with miraculous provision, but he could be at work with miraculous protection, too. And this early church, beginning to live this selfless kind of life, where people are beginning to take notice And someone, Ananias and Sapphira, are the example here. They begin to let their heart lean toward deceit, lean toward a cover-up. And it takes them to a place where it gets sideways really fast. You know, Peter's conversation is a fascinating conversation because it's so true. Ananias, didn't that land belong to you? Well, yeah, it did. Couldn't you have given whatever amount of money you wanted to give to the church? Well, yeah, yeah, you could. Ananias, why? Why did you let your heart go to the place where you sought recognition and admiration of people and you passed something off as, here's all the amount I got for the land, when in reality, it wasn't? Now, let me ask you, how many of you are Ananias? Let's just be honest. How many, uh, I'll, I'll say for me, how many times in my own life have I tried to pass myself off as something more than maybe what was really there? Have you ever done that? You don't have to raise your hand. But if you're honest, you, you probably have at some point. Probably came to a place where you began to say, hey, there's something different here. See, God measures differently. It reminds me of the story, uh, remember Samuel? who's finding David. David's going to be this great king for Israel. And he's looking through all of David's brothers, right? And David's the youngest. He's the one that's out in the field. And he brings him in. He's the last 
to, to kind of stand before Samuel. And then there's this incredible verse in the first Samuel 16 that says this. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance. He's talking about David's older brother. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at this outward appearance, the stuff, the things you can see. But God, God looks where? At the heart. God looks at the heart. Ananias, why is your heart gone to this place where it shouldn't be? Sapphira, why has your heart gone to this place where it's not living as integrity? It's not living with integrity. It's living as this divided person who says one thing and lives another. We call that what? Hypocrisy, right? And the church is full of them. And the truth is this. As a follower of Jesus, we are all recovering hypocrites. Aren't we? I'm not going to stand up here and say I'm perfect, nor should you. I know you. You know me. We're not. I'm going to do things that probably hurt you. You're probably going to do things that probably hurt me, and we need to work it out and, and get along, and we need to not be people who project this perfection, but who say I'm in progress toward all that God is desiring and pulling me forward to be because he's recreating me. He's remeasuring and reshaping my heart. See, here's the truth. As Ananias and Sapphira got to a place where they were seeking the admiration of people, Barnabas brought this gift, and people oohed and awed. And friends, that's a dangerous place to be if you let it stick with you and you seek out the oohs and ahs. Because it gets you to a sideways place where you begin craving the admiration and the attention of people more than the approval of God. And here's the truth for you. Aim to, to have your actions win the approval of God over the admiration of people. Make an aim in your life that your actions, the best you know how, is seeking the approval of God and his blessing over the admiration and the oohs and ahs of people. Now, it's not wrong to have honor. It's not wrong to be given honor. It's not wrong to be given a recognition. It's not wrong at all. But if that becomes the craving of your heart, well then, friend, you have to watch that God measures things differently than we do. We're called to be people of integrity. That's why every single one of us can watch Lance Armstrong, and we can look at that, and this isn't a shot at him, uh, whatever your thoughts are on that. I watched that, and I thought, I'm Lance. That's me. Because every one of us is broken. And every one of us is one decision away. See, integrity doesn't uh, just run out on you one day. Integrity slips, doesn't it? It slips one small decision at a time. Until pretty soon you wake up and you're standing before Peter and you're like, oh yeah, here he is. Here's all the money I got for the land. Because I'm seeking the oohs and ahs and I'm seeking the admiration of people. See, integrity has a direct connection to humility. And humility is the key ingredient of the spiritual life of following Jesus. Uh, Rick Warren wrote this, the most effective defense against personal sin is humility. All other godly virtues flow from it. Humility is key. 
And when you and I get stuck craving and hungering for honor and admiration, you are forgetting that the greater story of God that's going on around you involves you, but you're not the superstar of it. And neither am I. That the story of God that's unfolding and has been unfolding since the beginning of time and will outlive you and outlive me is it involves me, but it's not about me. It's about his story and about his glory and about his fame and about his honor because he is holy and he is set apart and he is divine and he is God and I am not. And the notion is when we begin to live life that way, to say, God, uh, oh, yeah, you're God, I'm not then we can approach a story like this and, and we can wrestle with it. Honestly, wrestle with it. God, I don't understand. I don't get, like, where's the grace? Why, why didn't he get, like, a second chance? Well, I know he's with you, and death is just the end of this life and the beginning of eternal life with you, but why? Like, I don't understand that. Now, you might be going, okay, well, is that gonna happen to me if I try to... <laughs> put one by God? I don't know. I hope not. I don't think so. I, because I see so many examples throughout Scripture of God's grace and His hope, but I can't stand up here and tell you no because it happened. Isn't it interesting that Luke would include this story? See, if you're writing a novel and you're wanting people to buy into this, you don't put that in it, Right? If we're just honest, unless, unless you're telling the truth and, and you're, allowed, you're allowing God to be God and for you not to be and for you not to have to have all the answers and to make everything fit in a little tiny box and wrap up neatly. If God can be God and stand outside of you and me and Jesus can call us friends, then we are his friends. He said so, but he is still God and I am not and neither are you. And so it's this challenge, this, this, this pull, this tension, if you will, of both. And here's what you begin to see through the story of Ananias and Sapphira. See, greed corrupts and contaminates relationships. And maybe part of God's protection in this story was to say, friends, what we have here, this movement of Jesus, is such a beautiful thing. I don't want it to be contaminated yet because it's gotta find traction and it's gotta go because this is a message for the whole world, not just Jerusalem and not just Judea, but for the ends of the earth. And begin to see this pop up in different places. See, deceit destroys trust, doesn't it? You've all been on the receiving end of that. Deceit has a way of destroying trust, but generosity and honesty, it cultivates relationships and it begins to build healthy community. And this early church had to wrestle with these things, that these cover-ups could not happen. And it's a challenging passage, and I don't know what all it even means for us. I just knew I couldn't go around it. Here's what I came to this week. I didn't want to preach this, because it's uncomfortable. It's weird. It's, it just seems like, okay, if you're trying to get people here to hear about God, and you're gonna tell them about dead people, who brought money to God? Like, that just seems, what? <clears throat> Here's what I would say to you. God's God, and I'm not. And how he runs things and how he does things is pretty consistent with his nature. And it's pretty consistent with grace and hope 
and love, but God is God and I am not. And he can change his mind and he can do things that I don't necessarily see a conclusion to. But what I'm telling you is I do believe that God is not only providing for his people, but at some motion, some moments in time protecting his people. That seems to make sense to me in this story, even though I still struggle with it, just being honest. I think there's some truth here for us. It goes on, it says, great fear seized all these, I mean, could you imagine? <laughs> yeah. That would seize me. Um, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these accounts. Like that's, that'd be pretty awe-inspiring. Um, okay, well, maybe, uh, maybe God doesn't fit in my box like I thought he did. Maybe he just does things differently at times. It's interesting in, in verse 11 here, it's the first time Luke uses the word ecclesia, the, the word church, where we get church from. It's the first time it shows up is right at this moment, in this dark moment. And God says, I'm, I'm calling this people, this word ecclesia in Greek is literally this called out and called together type of word. These people that are called out and called together. It was meant to be like this assembly that would happen. It, it, we tend to think of it as an institutionalized type of thing. And the truth is, it's not an institutionalized, it's not a building even, which is good because we don't have one yet. Um, and so it's not a building, it's this, this called out, called together ones. And I, I believe God in his, remember it says in the scripture that God disciplines those he loves, just as a father disciplines his children. Maybe in this moment is disciplining to say, I, I want your heart. See, I measure things differently. And I want your heart to stay on track here. Don't, don't let deceit, don't let this cover up become a part of who you are and how you live out as you're called out and called together to be this movement focusing on Jesus. And so I don't know how that hits you tonight. You know, maybe if you're uh, just a new person back into church, man, I'm glad you're here. I hope you come back. I think next message is much more encouraging. Um, <clears throat> But I hope that maybe there's something here for you to wrestle with. Here's what hit me this week. Um, I'm reading through the Bible this year. And in uh, Psalm 51, here's what I'd like to do. is just kind of read a passage over you. And in, in a moment, well, I'll come back up and we'll kind of move into worship and move into a uh, time of communion. And I want to just read this passage because I, I think the best way to end this message is to reflect a little bit. Uh, individual reflection, meaning for you. Psalm 51 is about David when he's, he commits this sin and he, he kind of commits adultery and he commits this sin and, and David's called this man after God's own, what, heart. And yet he does wrong things and, and so do we because no one's perfect. And yet David's heart begins to turn back to God. He doesn't put up this opposition to say, you know, I forget you, God. I was just trying to deceive you. And he kind of keeps going, no, no. His heart is contrite and his heart is broken. And he begins to point himself back toward God and to seek this reconciliation, to seek renewal. And here's what, how he begins to write these things. And maybe you just want to close your eyes and just think about this for you. I don't know where your heart is. Here's what I do know. God measures things differently than I do. I measure by things I see, things I know, things I notice. God measures the heart, and only he can do that. So 
So maybe as you hear these words, there's something that comes to mind for you, and maybe this is just a moment to say, God, I just want to confess this. I want to own up to it. Ananias and Sapphira had that moment. They didn't take it. David writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you, God, you only, have I sinned. I've done wrong with evil in your sight that you're proved right when you speak and you're justified when you judge. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts of who I am. You teach me wisdom. Cleanse me, God. And I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my iniquities blot out my sin. And then this beautiful phrase, maybe the phrase for us this week, this prayer. God, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Say that with me. Create in me a new heart, O oh God. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Father, you measure things differently. May this week be a week where we, we pray that over and over. God, we want to be people of integrity, people that what you see is what you get kind of people the best we know how. God, we admit you are God and we are not. And when things don't tidy up and and come with a bow on it and it doesn't make sense sometimes, we just recognize and admit out loud again, God, you are God and we are not. God, you measure things differently. You desire purity, integrity of heart and invested into your movement and hope and grace of Jesus to be people that move with a whole heart, not divided, segmented, or broken. So Father, we remember in communion, and there's stations around the room in the moment. You're welcome to participate in that if you want. But we remember the, the death, burial, the resurrection, the giving of your body, Jesus, of your blood, that we might have grace to stand, that we might have grace to walk with you, that we might have the grace to even pray. God, create in me a clean heart, oh God. May that echo with us this week.